Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast about life and politics on the African continent. I'm Kim Edion, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rachel Beatty-Riedel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Kim. So first up this week, let's return to talk of elections. It's one of our favorites here at Ufahamu Africa, as you well know. And the focus for this week is on Burkina Faso. So I want to give our listeners a quick primer for context to catch us up to where we're at today. Now, in 2014, there were large protests across the country, trade union mobilization over Blaise Compore's third-term manipulations. He had been in power for 27 years and was still just trying to change uh, the rules, the constitution, to be able to run for what was then deemed a third term. Um, There was also at that time an insider break-off from the dominant party. A faction had broken off a few months in advance, anticipating these highly contested elections. And all of these forces came together to push Kampore out, and a transitional military-civilian government came into power to organize towards new multi-party elections. And in those elections in 2015, the new party that was that uh, break-off faction from the dominant party, the uh, People's Movement for Progress, won the 2015 presidential elections, and that brought the now incumbent president, Kabore, to power. So fast forward to 2020 to today, and the election is planned for next month. The next presidential election is scheduled for November 22nd. And a new report out by Al Jazeera's Henry Wilkins details how the deteriorating security situation in the country and the government's handling of that condition means that citizen participation in this upcoming election will be significantly constrained. About 17% of the electoral communes have been deemed unsafe by the government for voter registration to take place, and that's due to worsening conflict, which is pitting government forces and international troops against various armed groups linked to ISIL and Al-Qaeda. So what this means in terms of citizen participation is more than 400,000 people were unable to register for the presidential vote. So not everyone will be able to cast their ballots um, and not everyone will be able to uh, participate. And in particular, those areas that are unable to participate are those that are geographically more detached from the center, less well-governed, less state security provided, and more susceptible to these non-state attacks. But... The incumbent president and party has said the election must go on and that despite the failure to register these voters, the election will continue. In fact, they, the government passed a new law in August stating that a major force of something to happen in the country such as this conflict is an acceptable reason not to hold full voter registration. Now, these areas that are really being excluded from the process are, of course, those that are most suffering from the effects of the fighting and state neglect. So in many ways, I think this is, you know, something that's applicable across many regions of the world. And it sounds to me like some of the questions uh, surrounding the U.S. census, uh, you know, how long is it able to go on, who's fighting for it to be canceled early. And the point really is battles over who is counted and under what categories and for what end in terms of political representation are really where struggles to make elections democratic are frequently waged. And it bears repeating, there's no guarantee of democratic content just by abiding by formal democratic procedure, that is, passing legislation in order to disenfranchise is a classic autocratization move via formal institutions. And that's precisely what happened here. The legislator passed a vote saying, yes, this is an acceptable reason not to hold voter registration, and we'll go forward with these elections that disenfranchise a large minority of the population. So what happens next? 
Once these citizens are further cut out of the state's ability to provide security, governance, or offer their own voice in representation, it's likely that exit is their next option. So analysts who are uh, closely following the region, such as Alex Thurston in the Sahel blog, um, say that this law, for example, further risks disenfranchising those citizens, and that could drive them into the arms of the armed groups themselves. That's worrying. You know, um, it's it's interesting when you bring up the case of Burkina Faso. I'm, you know, in talking about voter registration, I'm thinking about the own challenges I've faced with uh, getting my own mother registered to vote here in the United States elections. And, and you know, as starting off with elections, I, I want to point out the U.S. Secretary of State has issued a statement this week on, quote, upcoming elections in Africa. And in his statement, Secretary Pompeo said, in part, We believe all sides should participate peacefully in the democratic process. Repression and intimidation have no place in democracies. And I I think this is really interesting because, you know, as many people who pointed out on Twitter this week when this statement was released, it's kind of hypocritical, right, for the U.S. to be talking about other countries and, and even, you know, going to the point of naming Africa, but not actually naming any of the countries that are having elections on the continent. Secretary Pompeo further said, quote, we will watch closely the actions of individuals who interfere in the democratic process and will not hesitate to consider consequences, including visa restrictions for those responsible for election-related violence. Again, like uh, really thick coming from an administration that, you know, people have pointed out are not exactly a beacon of light for democracy. Everyone's getting in on the, the elections here in the United States, including Nando's, the South African chicken chain, which has some of the most delicious chicken and chips one can get anywhere in the world. They post a cute little um, tweet that was, you know, encouraging people to get out the vote. So, again, we're going to be watching uh, what Africans are saying about the U.S. elections. And if there's anything anyone's reading in particular on this, we'd love to hear and, and see more of it. Absolutely, Kim. So that is totally on my mind, in particular, you know, the kind of hypocrisy of uh, thinking about where and what we should be watching when democracy and democratic procedure is so at stake in the United States. And that leads me to an Atlantic article that I saw this week, which commented on the increasing degree of election observation that's been ramping up in the United States itself and calling out that international observers who are affiliated with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe are going to be observing this 2020 election. In fact, they've been observing elections since 2002, following really the very bungled elections in in 2000, the presidential elections in, in Bush v. Gore. So that is really an interesting way in which we see international observers coming into the U.S. context. Now, that group is made up of North American, European, and Asian nations. So it's really a mix of observers. And also the non-governmental affiliate of the Carter Center is also preparing its own observers for this high stakes U.S. election. And it just made me, you know, really wish and hope for, you know, ECOWAS or AU observers uh, to participate as well and maybe to, you know, join a delegation in this in this context. 
For sure. I mean, for me, as someone who's been watching politics in Malawi over you know the last couple of decades, I'm you know I wish we had observers coming from the one part of the world that um, that Freedom House has said you know democracy is not on the decline, and in fact, democracy is getting stronger in Malawi. And I think we have a lot to learn from Malawi's most recent elections. And I'll just share with some of our listeners, totally unrelated to elections, but definitely related to Malawi, that DJ Chemba has released a new EP on iTunes. We'll be sure to put a link to that in our uh, in our links post later this week. And also um, Amanda Robinson at Ohio State this week pointed me to a, an NPR Tiny Desk concert by um, the Mouse Boys, which is another band in Malawi. Um, that Tiny Desk concert is available on YouTube and we'll also be sharing that with our listeners. So I'm excited to introduce this week's guest since we're, you know, talking all about elections. This week's conversation is with Yonatan Morris. His book, How Autocrats Compete, Parties, Patrons, and Unfair Elections in Africa, talks about Tanzania and Cameroon. In our interview at the African Studies Association annual meeting last year, he talked to me about the political crisis in Cameroon and if it was an Anglophone issue. Here's Yonatan. There are really three crises in Cameroon simultaneously right now. I'd say there's the Boko Haram still in the north. That is a right. big strain in the north. Uh, there's still a disputed, disputed presidential election from 2018 and the uh, the aftermath of that still. Uh, the major opposition candidate, Maurice Compte, was jailed just, just a few weeks ago. And then, of course, this crisis in northwest and southwest, the English-speaking regions of Cameroon. Now, it's been a two-year conflict right now that's taken uh, extremely heavy toll. There have been approximately maybe probably 3,000 people killed. 150,000 internally displaced, and about 40,000 refugees. The economic toll is enormous in these regions, and the educational toll, about 80% of school children in these regions have been to school in nearly two years. And so it's a very drastic humanitarian situation that is now at a stage of stalemate. Uh, it's been going on for two years. There is no, we're no closer to mediation or negotiation, and the government's no closer to ending the secessionist or the insurgency movement that is itself extremely fractured. Right. Because it's not like, it doesn't seem like the leadership in the in this rebellion is is, is unified. Not at all. And, and part of the dynamic that's happened, you know, it started as not quite as an Anglophone issue. I mean, that was part of it. Uh, it's never just been an Anglophone issue, but Anglophone identity has become much more elevated and salient now since the conflict has escalated where people now think of it. And I think in 2016, there was a lot of grievance over language policy, over the role of uh, common law, over the imposition of French-speaking judges who weren't familiar with common law into local courts. There were concerns over the distribution of resources and who gets what and what access do you get, and broader concerns about representation, accountability in a country like Cameroon, where man's been president for 37 years. The government initially made some concessions. It said we would have a bilingual commission, uh, but also maintain this hard edge response to these uh, strikes and protests that happened in 2016, 2017. And once it became violent, it really polarized everything, uh, this mutual escalation. So in 2016, 17, you had some people who were more arguing, all we need are more English-speaking lawyers or more English classes in the civil service school, in Enna, right. or more people to be admitted, to people now who wanted decentralization or federalism Secession and independence. Yes, yes. (laughs) And I think if you ask the average uh, citizen of these regions in 2016, 2017, you'd get a mixed response. 
But now I think the sentiment is towards independence for a lot of people because of the government response. And it's just polarized things completely. At the same time, the movement is so fractured. There are two competing Ambazonian governments with two competing military wings, plus local militias and what they call self-defense groups with names like the Red Dragons, the Libyalum Dragons, the Manu Tigers. Uh, General people call them the Amba Boys. Uh, Short for Amazonia. For Amazonia, which is the name that's given to the independent state. And um, recently there was uh, this national dialogue Mm -hmm. at the end of September, beginning of October, this five days. But of course, all the major groups were were boycotted or weren't invited. Uh, Members of the major political parties, some of them boycotted it as well. And it didn't seem to make much dent in the crisis. Now, your book has just come out. But you're already planning your next project on social welfare expansion in Africa. Can you tell our listeners what you're researching and how you came to study this topic? So this is in very early stages. <laughs> um, I became very interested after studying sort of authoritarianism and unfair elections and conflict in Cameroon to, to move to sort of more tranquil ground yeah. <laughs> for the next project a little bit. And it's a completely different set of countries, too, which is very exciting for me. uh, It's a great privilege to be able to do that type of work and kind of be multi-country focused. As a comparativist, it's important for me to do that within Africa, too. It's always been a big goal of mine is that we can make valid comparisons within Africa with case studies uh, rather than having to choose something from different regions where it violates a lot of assumptions. And so I became interested in this notion of state welfare in sub-Saharan Africa, which is not really studied that much. There's a lot on social protection and cash transfers these days, but not a lot on the concept of social welfare too much. There's been a lot of focus on informal forms of welfare, like through the family, through NGOs and international actors. Um, in fact, some people called African states insecurity regimes, right? Mm. These are states that actually predate, they don't provide state welfare. And I became very interested in, in sort of these developments that a lot of people have noticed, like national health insurance in Ghana, right? right? The universal pensions in Botswana. Uh, people it's gone under the radar, this expansion of community-based health insurance in Senegal mm-hmm. or in Rwanda mm-hmm. or in places like Ethiopia. And this explosion of cash transfers, of school feeding programs, mm-hmm. and, and trying to understand that a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So the stages where we're at now, we've, you know, one of the things we've done is gathered a lot of uh, data. Uh, it, there is no historical information on state welfare mm-hmm. in Africa. Usually we use spending data, like how much percentage of GDP is spent. That's great if you can get it, but you can really only get it going back to 2007. We wanted to go back to the 1960s. And so we looked at sort of original social security reports to measure what were the commitments that states made towards notions of welfare. And the data set has stuff on pensions, health, uh, workmen's insurance, unemployment, uh, sickness and maternity benefits. Yes, nearly every African country has maternity benefits. <laughs> right, right. If only the U.S. could follow African yeah. countries in this, in this regard, that would be great. It's historically only been for a very narrow formal sector. But since the 1990s, uh, what the trends kind of show is, first of all, there's always been variation in Africa across countries, even what the formal sector received. Mm-hmm. Big differences between French colony countries versus former British colony countries, mm-hmm. but some convergence, too, over time. Uh, and since the 1990s, a couple of things have happened. One is that uh, for the formal sector, welfare has actually gotten more generous. Like size of pensions are higher. Um, the number of benefits received is higher. Like workers in Tanzania all of a sudden receiving uh, health insurance pools as well. Uh, which is contrary to the story we tell about welfare, that there's yeah. been this neoliberal retrenchment. 
uh, there's actually been expanding, and it gets interesting in different ways too. There's also been this expansion of how universal policies are going to become. Uh, either, right, like is it for the ultra poor, or is it is right. it you know uh, universal basic income? Anyone can have it. Just know? look at pensions. You have pension systems that are still narrowly towards the paying formal sector. Yeah. You have countries that don't have any pensions. Malawi didn't have a formal pension scheme until just a few years ago, which is part of this expansion. Uh, or you're expanding the categories of eligible people, like domestic workers. So if you have a domestic, uh, lots of people have domestic workers in their homes, you have to pay for their pensions. Uh, or do we create uh, some sort of universal benefit? Or do we create voluntary schemes where we can create matching sort of schemes, something Ghana is toying with right now? Uh, so there's been that, this sort of universalization of certain policies, uh, of cash transfers, it only for the extremely poor, or is for rural communities, what type of households are targeted. Um, and then the structure of welfare has changed a little bit too, um, where, and here's why I think, I think it's interesting to me, like Ghana is an interesting case, uh, because pensions in Ghana have always been narrow for the formal sector. They had a very strong social security administration. And the new scheme that's been around uh, for about eight years now is this three-tier scheme. And part of it was to take formal workers social security contributions and take part of that away from the state fund into a private fund to privatize part of it. Now, the story we tell in Latin America that this is driven by neoliberal retrenchment, but the story in Ghana, this was the demand from workers. Because they would get higher returns? Uh, yes, because of corruption, because of distrust of the state. They wanted independent control of their money. Now, social security is a huge source of revenue <laughs> And patronage sometimes in a system like Ghana. If you go through Ghana, everybody knows what SNIT is. That's the Social Security National Insurance Trust. The billboards are everywhere. The buildings are everywhere. I've seen their real estate holdings, their stock holdings. It's big business. And so they're very reluctant to give away some of that and put it in private accounts. At the same time, they created this third tier, which is a voluntary tier. And the idea is this is for the informal sector. But this becomes politicized now, too. Because now they can say they can mobilize certain sectors of the informal sphere and create a matching system. You put a dollar in, we'll put a dollar in. And so the pilot one, of course, cocoa farmers. Right. Oh, my gosh. It's brilliant. Is the first. And it becomes uh, – so this is what we're trying to understand. It's not that um, – is what kind of welfare is evolving in sub-Saharan yeah. Africa. Because you're talking about uh, environments where there's not large-scale social mobilization for welfare expansion. The way there was in Latin America. There isn't. Uh, very resource-constrained states where you have to make tough choices about who gets what and a very narrow tax base, often just the formal sector, mm -hmm. which is why the formal sector is an important part of the story. Um, distrust of the state. And of course, a system of politics that often prefers a very more narrow, selective distribution of resources. And so the question to me is always, what part of welfare is going to get emphasized? Who's going to get it? How is it going to be run? These are very important questions that we're trying to uh, to get at. Yeah, and I'd be curious to know, right, I mean, especially given your expertise on elections, right, the timing of the announcements of these new policies and how those policies evolve based on, you know, whether the, the, the people in power feel threatened, like their position is threatened by, you know, or, or maybe they're losing support and so they might yeah. introduce a specific type of policy that might, you know, reach certain voters. And there's multiple games. It's uh, um, We're toying with these ideas of different uh, structures of electoral competition and how yeah. that creates uneven incentives to need to f use social welfare policies to reach new voters, but it also influences the capacities that people have to curtail internal dissent 
like Ghana, this two-party polarization is actually a boon because if you're pissing off a local MP, I don't know if I can say pissing yes, off, but if you're can. pissing off a local MP because you're taking some local power for a universal benefit now, it's not like they can go anywhere else. Yeah. They have to live with it. Yeah. Uh, and this is a big part of the interviews that I've done. And part of this is that talking to people about pressure they got from MPs to give us the funds. We need the funds for our constituency. And then people in these administrations saying, no, we have criteria. Yeah, But then you have the institutions of delivery themselves that are often politicized. So it's different to take power away from something to give it to something more universal versus creating something out of nothing, which was the national health insurance, for instance. And uh, it's, and also it's, the point is also it's none of it's systematic. It's all opportunistic. And even under the best scenarios, you get this kind of weird, quasi, poorly implemented sometimes. Some aspects politicize, sometimes aspects aren't. Sometimes we're focusing on welfare, and sometimes welfare is just not on the political agenda anymore. And things like um, road construction and other forms of public goods are. So before we go, we have to ask you the question we ask all of our guests. Is there anything you've read recently that you might recommend to our listeners? Well, I've read a lot. I've read a lot of things. I can't just recommend one, but for the social protection, I've been reading Candelaria Garay's book on social expansion in Latin America, which has been a big influence on the on the on the project. I've been reading uh, Gwyneth McKelvin, McClendon's uh, Envy and Politics. I think it's just yeah, a great book. And in Africa stuff, I've been reading the two books about Ghana, Jeffrey Pollard and Noah Nathan's book, which are nice companions to yeah. each other. And Kendall Powell's book on legislative development has been. That's my stack right now. <laughs> yes, it's a big stack by your bed then. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Yonatan, for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ufahamu Africa. To find any of the articles, books, or links we talked about on today's episode, head to ufahamuafrica.com. We are also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This podcast is produced by Megan DeMint with help from production assistants Fulia Felicity Turkman and Aliou Jabari Gambrell. We are generously supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York and receive research assistance from Cornell University and the University of California, Riverside. Our music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Until next week, Safiri Salama.